Yes, I can speak. Hello, so we are back with your favorite team. So today we have a special series of podcasts, which is entitled I Can Speak. So I don't know if you recognize or guess where this abstract is from. But today we're going to talk about comfort women. So our interest arise after reading a controversial article on the memorial statue of comfort women in San Francisco. If you never heard about comfort women, don't worry. That's what makes this topic so essential to discuss. So in a few words, um, comfort women are Southeastern um, Asian women that were used as sex slaves by the Japanese army during um, World War II. So the numbers do remain quite imprecise on that question, but apparently 20,000 to 400,000 women um, or more young girls would have been taken. So they were mainly um, girls from Korea, China, um, and the Philippines, but also they also came from Thailand, Vietnam, Taiwan, etc. And so the name Comfort Women, or in French Femme de Réconfort, is a translation of the Japanese Yanfu, which is a euphemism compared to the horrific reality of these women. So the three main resources we're going to use are the book of Yuki Tanaka, who wrote in 2001, Japan's Comfort Women, the Military and Involuntary Prostitution During War and Occupation. He's a history teacher at the University of Hiroshima who wrote extensively about forced prostitution under the Japanese Empire, as well as in Japan under the US military rule. The second is an amazing interview we had the chance to do with Christelle Levy, which is an historian specialized on globalization and transnational feminism issues in Japan. Lastly, as you all know by now, as humanities students, we learned and reflect mainly on our history teacher, the famous Mr. Piketty. We would also like to give you a hint on what is going to come next. So firstly, we will present to you in depth the historical context of comfort women. Second, the retrous movement of comfort and the different attitude between Asia and the Western world. Thirdly, the role of statue and commemoration. And as fourth, we will talk about the historical evolution of rape as weapon of war. And lastly, there will be an analysis of the process of memorization through films and animated movies. I really hope you will join this special series of podcasts and that you will learn on the narrative and representation of comfort women. Yes. everyone hi girl how are you hi everyone how are you i'm feeling good and you yeah yeah i'm pretty good i'm pretty good thanks a bit tired but it's fine yeah um, i'm so excited to get started okay so it's gonna be great tell us what we're going to talk about yeah so we're going to of course make our podcast about comfort women and so this first episode um is going to be uh, about the historical context, because uh, I, we think it's very important for you to really have an insight on what the context was and why it led to such an atrocious system. Um, and in addition, we would like to give you a glimpse of how life might have been for these women and how much trauma they went, uh, they, they went through. through sorry. Um, so to illustrate this, I'd like to read you a very moving testimony from a, a former comfort woman who said that... Um, 12 soldiers raped me in quick succession, after which I was given half an hour rest. 
I bled so much, and I was in so much pain. I could not even stand up. I could not resist the soldiers, because they might kill me. So, as you see, it's very, very tragic and moving and very terrible. And that's why we need to talk about it, because it was an atrocious event. And um, as Hannah Arendt also described, it's a very good representation of the banality of evil in times of war. And so in this podcast, we will discuss this system from its origins to the way it functions and affecting its numerous victims. Yeah, I agree. It's really a difficult topic to discuss, but I think that was making it so interesting. So that's why we chose it. So first, uh, we're going to talk about the origins of the comfort woman system. So actually, it's really hard to know for sure when the first Yanjo uh, was created. And sorry, uh, everyone, for our Japanese uh, accent. We really yeah. apologize in advance so for not making honor to this language, but we'll do our best, our best we promise. Yeah. So um, these Yanjo were created because most records were destroyed after the Japan surrendered in 1945. So, however, we can trace back records of brothers that were made, especially for troops and officials, as soon as 1932 with the Shanghai incident. Uh, in the late 1937, after the beginning of the Sino-Japanese War, the comfort woman system became a more general policy, so we can see like where it gets like, really uh, big. And so the Nanjing Massacre of 1937 marked a sudden increase in confirmed station by 1938. And at that time, the system was like a really general pattern. So as the war continued, military leaders justified the system, saying that it is a way to prevent rape on civilians from the ever-growing troops, and that it provides soldiers with leisure. Okay, uh, we don't like that. We all agree on that. Uh, but that what happened. Uh, they said that there is no statistical data on the number of workers in Yanjo, but by April uh, 15 in 1939, between 1,400 and 1,600 women were imported to serve the first, uh, 21st Army. So those women were brought many from Japan and Korea, and they were dispatched into three different types of stations. They were the permanent station in major cities, then the semi-permanent, and then some temporary station. Uh, two times a week, those women were inspected for venereal disease to protect the soldier. Yeah, thank you so much, Manon, for explaining us that. And as you can see, it's a very, it's almost an uh, industrial process. It's very organized. So I'm going to talk a bit more about the organization because it's crazy how much they organize something so cruel and so terrible. So two main methods were used to um, employ uh, women from all over Asia. Uh, they either were recruited locally and as local civilians uh, that were, for the most part, not even prostitutes, or they were recruiting agents that would be sent to Korea, Taiwan or Japan to select comfort women by using deceptive methods or even violence. And from 1942, even the Ministry of War was getting involved in the control of comfort station. So the question is, um, why? Why this system? Maybe you're wondering, because we wonder that too. Why not losing legal methods and why not involving um, prostitutes that were actually qualified and willing to do this? Why using force and rape? Well, first and foremost, it was the, in the army's interest to provide soldiers with this type of leisure. And there were just not enough prostitutes to do the job, as cruel as it might sound and as cruel as it is. Raping civilians in occupied territories only increases local hostility. Moreover, in February 1942, the Japanese Imperial Army 
criminal law considered rape as only a secondary crime. So it was not that bad to rape a person at that time, which is completely horrible to think about now. And as they really wanted to prevent the spread of STDs and diseases and wanted to reinforce security for the soldiers, the system was quickly accepted because they could control the women and control the, the sexual intercourse more easily. And moreover, due to the strong racism in Japan at the time, the fact of using women from various Southern Asian countries really actually reduced guilt from the soldiers and they did not feel that guilty, which is horrible. Yeah, and if all of this was not bad enough already, uh, we have to remember that the comfort woman system was a really industry, like you said, with a precise and efficient organization. So the procurement of this comfort woman was made in a very efficient way that would ensure the army maximum effectiveness. So depending on where the woman came from, the methods were not the same. So we're going to see like different cases. So for the Korean and the Taiwanese women, the army started uh, selecting recruiting agents from 1939 and ordered specific quotas for women. So we talk about quotas here. Testimony shows that the most used technique was deceit, especially false promises for employment in Japan to poor peasant family. So the idea is that this military would come to like really poor uh, neighborhoods and villages and would say, okay, so we have like an offer and sometimes they would say like, is to employ them, but at the end we all know there wasn't uh, the actual reason, and so that's why this woman like didn't know where they would like really get to, and so everything was done to make them feel comfortable up, but until the moment they arrive at the station in order for them to not turn back, so they didn't have any like escape. Uh, like liberty to escape where they were uh, being tracked to. So unlike in Korea and Taiwan, abduction and kidnapping were used in China and the Philippines. So it seems as if troops did not even try to conceal what they were doing in those regions. Uh, maybe the strong and widespread anti-Japanese guerrilla movement there could explain this extra violent behavior. And also in the Dutch and the East Indies, so the now Indonesia, uh, many testimonies show that sexual violence and rape were committed against women directly after the Japanese invasion. A Dutch government report stated that around 200 to 300 European women working stationed there, and of which 65 were mostly certain forced into prostitution. So we can see that also people from Europe were used in this comfort station. Yeah, exactly. So it was very widespread. And as you might imagine, from the violence of this system and the total lack of choice and consent, life as a comfort woman was dreadful. Most of them actually asked to be sent back home when they realized the real job conditions, but were either forced to stay or told that their families needed to pay tremendous amounts of money before they could leave. So they were basically trapped there. And uh, once they arrived at the station, their nightmare really truly began. Each woman served up to 10 men a day on regular periods and up to 40 before combat. Can you imagine that? And the regulation for each man was 30 minutes. And it was cut to only a few minutes in more busy times. So it literally looks like an industry and as if these women were literal machines. Um, price was set depending uh, on the military client, but most women said that they received very little to no payment at all for uh, for their work from the managers. Moreover, in addition to the lack of remuneration, some clients were actually violent, especially those who were drunk. And some women were either forced to take drugs 
to cope or they they would take drugs themselves just to cope and to manage the pain and many of them actually committed suicide so it was just a terrible terrible event yeah and so what we all wonder now like that's why our question when we do our research is uh why did the u.s forces ignore the comfort woman issue so now we're kind of caught up on how the system works and how many different violations of human rights it caused. You might wonder why the U.S. forces ignore the issue. Uh, to be honest, we really wonder why. So here's kind of like the answer we can have. Uh, so when Japan surrendered, surrendered on August 15, 1945, the U.S. forces occupied the territory just two weeks later in order to democratize Japan. However, they did not use the occasion to deal with the comfort woman issue at all. Actually, the issue was not even mentioned during the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal, even though the U.S. authorities knew about the issue. So it's difficult to know for sure what are the reasons behind this, this, this inaction, but there are several hypotheses. So maybe it is the fact that the majority of victims were Asian and so neither white or citizen of the allied nations. It also could be explained by the soldier common perception of women, especially in the military ideology. And many men believe that women owe them favors in exchange for their fighting on the field. Uh, also, the fact that the U.S. forces work hard to prevent the spread of venereal diseases in the army might also explain this lack of reper repercussion, as the comfort woman system helped in that direction. Some testimony even describes certain American brothers with a very similar organization to that of comfort station. And also, I would like the fact that uh, silence uh, was a really uh, complicated topic because most of these women just did not want to talk about that because of the repercussion that it could have in their family. It just in general, uh, they felt that it was like a shame what happened to them. So uh, silence in this uh, case is really important and need to be also taken in consideration. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's very important what you said about silence. And can you actually believe that this disregarding behavior from the U.S. actually did not change until 1945 and even later at times uh, because of the state of the conflict and the almost certainty that the Navy power in Europe was going to fail soon in 1945, the control of civilians from uh, the US Army became actually a priority. Thus, the general, the adjutant general reaffirmed the suppression of military prostitution uh, with the War Depar Department general policy. However, even with this measure, Sexual violence did not end with the conflict, especially for Japanese women. And some testimonies have shown that massive rape was conducted by the Allied occupation forces against the Japanese women. And in a heartbreaking testimony, Oshiro Masayu, uh, who is an Okinawan historian, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, but she explained that, um, I quote, soon after landing, the, marine tr the marines mopped up the entire village, but found no signs of Japanese forces. Taking advantage of this situation, they started hunting from women in broad daylight. So the level of fear for these women was so high because of the atrocities that the troops were doing on them that on August 16 of 1945, right after Japan's surrender, the railway stations and the train stations in Tokyo were crowded with women and children who hoped to be able to escape before the troops arrived. They were so scared that they wanted to just leave to remote places. Can you imagine that? And in Japan, to avoid the issue of mass rape, the government actually reasserted um, a similar um, 
uh, alternative of comfort station, and the proposition was actually accepted. And former prostitutes were working, and were um, sorry, former prostitutes and prostitutes that were still working were requisitioned by the army uh, in so-called beer halls. So that's the equivalent of uh, comfort stations, basically. And up to 2,391 women were employed there. So it's basically another type of comfort women system. So as you see, it did not even end with the war. So yeah, that's... Mm. Yeah, no. So what do you think about, like, we kind of do like a summary of all these big historical... Yeah, uh, that's a great idea. Okay, so like what we can take from all of this is that the comfort women system has been in place for many, many years. And it does not necessarily come in only one form, as we can see, like there is different uh, depending on where the women were coming from and like the different station. Uh, but what is always certain is that life as comfort women is just unbearable, like we can't even imagine. Um, and that all the victims and survivors were extremely brave for even going through it alive. But the worst is that they still did not get the acknowledgement and the recognition they deserve, as the Japanese government still did not own up to its crimes. We're not going to leave you with this, don't worry, we come back with our next episode. And so the next episode is going to explore the redress movement and see how the comfort woman issue looks like nowadays. So years after the events happen. So see you for our net podcast yeah. and hope you enjoyed this one. Exactly. Thank you for listening. Yes. I can speak. Hi everyone, welcome back. Thank you for joining us again on this podcast on Comfort Women. It's still us, the same people uh, from episode two. Um, so in episode two, we've seen the Comfort Women system and we've seen that it was a true case of sexual slavery and forced labor. Those girls were not consenting at all. And on top of that, they did not receive adequate payment for their service and suffering. To us and to many other people and activists, there is no doubt that this was sex sexual slavery. Um, however, unfortunately, not everyone shared the same vision. Uh, the comfort woman issue was not only misunderstood, but also highly stigmatized for a long time. One of these reasons, of course, was the initial silence, as we said in the previous episode of the victim. The perpetrators did not speak at all, and even not the witnesses. Survivor, uh, survivors kept silence for half a century, even after the event, notably due to the patriarchal norms that are highly stigmatizing for them. In Korea especially, where a majority of comfort women came from, no talk was made up until a very, very, very long time. And it's only around the 1990s that the victims actually started to open up. As the stories started to be shared, the redress movement began. This movement led, uh, was led by advocates, organizations and willing citizens um, that aimed at giving reparations to the victims and their families, as well as recognition. And in this episode, we will explore the redress movement, both in Asia and in the US, because it's very different how it's conducted in both these regions. And now I'll leave the floor to Manon, who will talk about the redress movement in Asian countries, mostly in Korea and Japan. Yes, thank you. So we were so excited to discuss this topic because it is so important and so fascinating and interesting. So we hope that you will enjoy it. So first, the recognition is really hard, as you all know, but especially for this issue concerning sexual activities 
sexual slavery and forced labor. So anything surrounding sex is still highly stigmatized and of, often considered taboo. Especially for women, sex in, in general is tied to numerous stereotypes and misconceptions that make it hard to approach the issue, especially in Asia, where the discussion surrounding sex is even less current. So as you may imagine, it was very difficult for victims to start speaking, but even more for them to be heard, which is really like the important recognition. So however, in the early 1990s, a progressive shift started to emerge, opening more possibilities for discussion. So this shift can be explained notably by the emergence of a unified Korean women's movement, yeah, woman power, yeah. or the replacement of the military dictatorship. So in 1990, uh, during this progressive wave, 37 women's organization is in South Korea created the Korean Council for the Women Drafted for Military Sexual Slavery by Japan. From now, uh, so from now on, when we say KSA, uh, uh, it's in reference to Korean Council, it's going to be easier for this podcast. Uh, so their initial request to the Japan government were, so first, acknowledge that the comfort women system existed, to make a formal apology and reveal the details about the system and also build memorials, make reparation to the survivor. So here we really talk about like how to build the memory of this event and how to uh, overcome traumas and then uh, their families and include information about it in history textbook because uh, we will see like how difficult it is to put it in manual uh, in Asia. So by the early 90s, efforts were made to fulfill this request. For example, in 1997, all seven history uh, textbooks for middle schooler included a mention of the comfort woman. Uh, moreover, in 1993, Chief Cabinet Secretary Kono Yuhi expressed Japanese apologies and remorse to quote him for the comfort woman system and recognize the imperial's military role in establishing, maintaining and managing the sex venues. So similarly, in August 1999, Prime Minister Maruyama Tomishi addressed the issue convoying his deep remorse, to quote him again, and also heartfelt apology for the Japan's pre-colonial rule and aggression. Even though this statement remains purposely blurry and vague, they were a step in the right direction. But, however, the KC action were ultimately slowed down by the shift toward historical revisionism. So now we can see that we have a second wave, which is more revisionist than before, and also really neo-nationalist. So it started at the mid-1990s and really rejected this progressive vision of the comfort woman system. So stigmatization and negationism became stronger than ever. For example, the far-right academics ask for the elimination of any mention of the comfort woman system in textbook. And by 2012, all the mention of it had disappeared. So we can see how complicated here is to build memory if you can't even acknowledge it to students and to teenagers. Mm -hmm. So moreover, in 2006, Shizu Abe became the prime minister and his highly negative views on the issue uh, became a uh, government policy and he defined the idea of sex slavery during World War One as a complete fabrication. So could you imagine here we like 
or completely revisionist, and we don't even like acknowledge the fact that he exists. But it did not stop um, the Korean Council, of course, and their actions. So alongside other women's organizations and international bodies, so we have some help from the international community, work even harder to get those women the recognition and the payment they deserve. So from 1995 to 1999, the KC carried out a medical examination of survivors. It turned out that 19 of the 53 girls tested were positive to syphilis. Many of them also reported physical beating and abuse injured in the station. And as well as strong psychological traumas, as we can imagine, such as mental disabilities, emotional disorder, self-loading, or even depression, and of course, uh, and unfortunately, suicidal thoughts. So following this, the KISE organized various meetings for the victim in order to start the healing process and help them to overcome the trauma. And in addition, they put in place civilian support networks, cooperating with medical institutions and also economic support from voluntary contribution and also support networks at the city and local community level. Thank you so much for all those great details about the action of the KC. It's such a great organization and we really do need things like that to help the victims and even to help history in general. And so um, this organization really, as you showed, is the pillar for the redress movement and really started out this whole process. And as the KC continued to work tirelessly, other organizations and bodies actually decided to join as well. Um, we could talk about a real transnational movement that reached even the highest bodies, such as the UN. Um, indeed, and maybe unsurprisingly, uh, the UN had quite a good reception of the issue, actually. Uh, since 1996, the UN uh, Human Rights Committee bodies and other human rights organizations sent over two dozen, so like over 24 resolutions to the Japanese government urging them to acknowledge the comfort woman system as sexual slavery and take adequate measures. However, no real response was made from the government, the Japanese government, and they still denied the issue. And uh, in 1996 and 1998, two groundbreaking reports were sent to the UN um, Human Rights Committee. And from that moment on, victims were able to report their situation to the Japanese, um, uh, sorry, their, their, both their situation and the Japanese government's responses, and they gave this information to the UN so that they could deal with it the, from the best of their abilities. And so other actions were undertaken by the UN bodies to show support for the victims. Uh, for example, in July 2014, we can note that uh, the UN Committee on Civil and Political Rights openly criticized the attitude of the Japanese government and demanded a full reparation, disclosure of all evidence of the crime, and a public apology and many other repa reparations for the victims. And uh, when the resolution was adopted, about 200 members of right-wing parties in Japan and organizations that were right-wings yelled at the UN committee members because they were treated uh, as leftists. So we can see the, the huge di um, disparities between the Japanese uh, far-right-wing um, parties and the, the organizations such as the UN who are really uh, willing to listen to these women. Um, yeah. 
So it's so reassuring to see that the international community is really helping in this issue. So the UN actually stepped forward to try and get those women the peace they deserve. And it is also important to know that beyond the UN and the KC organization and action, many other initiatives were also put into place by individuals or groups that feel like this issue is purely unfair, even without necessarily having any connection to it. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, for example, in uh, January 1992, the first Wednesday demonstration was launched and this demonstration is still occurring every week from that moment on. And it was firstly launched by the KC, but gathered many different people that are not even necessarily part of the KC. So uh, they have occurred more than a uh, thousand and three hundred times over the past 27 years. And now they are carried out by various organizations, but also students and even normal everyday citizens. And it can be dangerous for these citizens because they are at risk of having compromising pictures of them taken and sent to the government who, are, who is strongly against it. But like they don't care, which is amazing to see that they are willing to risk their safety and their life basically to defend these women. Um, but uh, yeah, and many of them are women actually who participate in this demonstration. And in 2011, it's interesting to see that more than 80% was, uh, were adolescents, so young people who were not comfort women at all. So uh, in December of 2011, a peace monument was placed in front of the Japanese embassy in Seoul for the uh, 1000th demonstration. And uh, so despite the government position, many citizens and organizations in Japan actually support the redress movement, which is very incredible and great to see. And moreover, many Japanese citizens also uh, visited Comfort Women monuments and museums. Some of them may even contribute financially to help um, initiatives and everything. Um, and also in 2015, the redress movement was actually uh, revived with the controversial agreement that was made between Japan and Korea. So the both governments made an agreement that was supposedly uh, to finally uh, resolve the issue. However, it was signed without consulting any exterior organization or body, such as the KC, and it proposed, it proposed money, a payment to compensate 56 Korean survivors, but the agreement did not even specify why the payment was made, so it's not really acknowledging the issue. So, of course, the KC and other organizations and even victims were completely against it. Even the UN was against uh, this agreement. And um, as a result of this very controversial agreement, new movements starting to rise and ask for a real resolution of the comfort women issue. Um, and this whole situation and the redress movement also paved the way for the creation of monuments such as um, the War and Women's Rights Museum. So overall, we have seen that obtaining reparations is a long process that is still ongoing. The rise of hate movements, especially since 2007, and the strong comfort women bashing in Japan from ultra-nationalists makes it very hard for victims to be recognized. Um, especially because the Japanese government as well is very against uh, the issue and won't acknowledge their crimes. Um, so um, even, even with all that negativity, the redress movement still made great achievements, especially in Korea, for example, where it opened up a discussion about uh, sex, sexual slavery and sexual assault. And so the way people talk about comfort women and rape is evolving, and we can only hope that it will continue evolving in the right direction in the future. 
As for Japan, um, it's more complicated. The situation is very much an issue still to this day uh, due to the ultra-nationalist and the neo-nationalist movements. Um, and the, f the fight is still far from being over, but we are hopeful that one day those women will get what they deserve and the justice they really deserve. Yeah, it is really striking to see like how the debate has be like has became really political between like right and left, and that's something that uh, Christine Levy mentioned in the interview that was really interesting to say that she's sad about that that we really like shift to this kind of like uh, political and opposition between right and left movement mm -hmm. and this uh, undermining the the whole recognition movement of women comfort. Mm -hmm. uh, but so now we're going to talk more like with the difference between um, the redress movement in Asia and in the US. So as you uh, starting to understand, they're really different because there is really different reaction, uh, but not the reaction is not only different in the Asian countries, but also between Asia and the Western world. So particularly in the US, comfort women issue has received rather positive, positive responses, as we saw it, mainly due to the culture, I think we can say, which is easier to talk about sexual assault and prostitution uh, in general than rather in Japan. Uh, the guilt factor is also uh, really important to take into consideration uh, for this recognition movement uh, because it's more complicated to talk about that uh, for the Japanese government than the US. Uh, and in any case, the redress movement in the US follows a drastically different energy than the one in Japan and to some extent Korea. So firstly, the issue is way less known in the US and the Western world than in both Japan and Korea. Um, so even though the, the movement are really different, uh, it gets really more attention uh, in the Asian countries. Uh, I think that we are a great example of this, despite having followed numerous history classes, we were never thought about this issue in school. And I've personally never seen it mentioned anywhere before this year. So that's why we were so interested to talk about this topic after we read the article, because we're like, oh my God, like we need to talk about that. That's like our duty. Um, so this issue did not concern the Western world directly in terms of victims. Uh, however, the reverse movement is still present there, especially since many Korean people migrated to countries such as the US, Canada, Australia, or Germany. So what could be described as the American equivalent of the Kisei is the Washington Coalition for Comfort Women issue, so referred as Washington Coalition or WC. The coalition started out in 1992, two weeks after the former uh, Comfort Women Oh Kyum Ju was invited to the US to give a testimony. So that's really this testimony that really helped uh, to have a strong movement in the US. So the Commission on uh, Human Rights uh, so she made that testimony there. Uh, during this moving recall, she shared her experience as a 17 years old sex slave. Uh, the attendees were shocked and her story was diffused on Fox News Challenge in, a, uh, in Great Washington, D.C. The general public was outraged, which is very different, different from the public reaction in Japan. So in Japan, the general public is still highly negative and critical towards comfort women. So in the US, the initial mission of the Washington coalition was to influence the US government to demand that Japan resolve this issue. The first move was to appeal to the US federal government and from that on, they intensively advocated through demonstration, publication, films, 
forum. And so, for example, in 1994, a documentary titled Comfort Woman was made and screened in many locations, such as universities. So we can see like really the memory movement uh, happening in the United States. So the Washington Coalition also created an international conference called the Comfort Woman of World War II, Legacy and Lessons. And on April uh, 2015, a paper called Open Letters of People of the United States and Japan was published in the Washington Post, taking up an entire page. So we can really see that the movement is having like a big um, impact uh, and that they're starting to like uh, work for recognition and for a heritage for this woman and moreover uh, really help them to get their voice heard. Yeah, exactly. And what I found to be the coolest thing is that more individual initiatives are also undertaken by different bodies, not only the Washington Coalition or even the case in Korea, but many, for example, universities. So uh, since 1994, uh, university, university, sorry, and colleges such as Harvard or Yale or Cornell or NYU have hosted college tours in which many seminars and testimonies are organized with the help of uh, survivor uh, Huang Kemju. Uh, and this tour actually continued in 2013, uh, notably in Boston at MIT, Boston College, and many other universities. And uh, another huge step forward was actually the passing of a House resolution, the House resolution 121 by Congress in 2007, which was really the culmination of WC's 15 years of efforts for recognition for the comfort women. And so the resolution expresses, and I quote, that the sense of the House of Representatives is that the government of Japan should formally acknowledge, apologize, and accept historical responsibility in a clear and inequivocal manner for its imperial armed forces coercion of young women into sexual slavery, known to the world as the comfort women. So as we can see, the House, um, the House of uh, Representatives actually acknowledges that the comfort women system was a system of sex slaves. And so there's only the, the Japanese government who is left to, to not acknowledge the issue. And it's very frustrating knowing that we are just that far away from actually having recognition for these women if only the government of Japan could actually acknowledge its responsibilities. So as we can see, even though the movement is way less active in the U.S. due to the fact that it did not happen in the U.S., the general trend is that people are more open to discussion and to actually understand and relate to these issues in the U.S. Yeah, definitely. And so what we really hope right now is that the redress movement will succeed in giving those brave survivors the justice and recognition they truly deserve. So talking about recognition, uh, our net po next podcast will actually be about a statue that was placed in San Francisco in order to celebrate and commemorate the victims of the comfort woman system. Uh, so we hope that you are liking this series so far and that we have told you interesting things so see you in the next episode see you thank you yes i can speak hello everyone and welcome back to our podcast this fourth episode is one that is going to take the form of a case study as we are going to focus primarily on the san francisco comfort woman statue Moreover, we will talk about its background, its design, and briefly of the political influence on the creation of the statue. Nevertheless, 
In the second part of the episode, we will discuss the role of comfort women statues overall, as well as the debates on their removal. So without further ado, let's begin. So first of all, um, we would like to give you some insight on the historical background of the statue. The Comfort Women Memorial in San Francisco was created and dedicated to comfort women who were taken advantage of during Second World War. It was presented to the world in September of the year 2017 with the official name Comfort Women Column of Strength. The statue was made by the British-American sculptor Stephen White. In an interview, he explained that they felt a need for the creation of the statue, as this was a historical matter not discussed enough Therefore, he wanted to intrigue individuals more into learning about comfort women and their experiences. So it is very relevant to understand that the meaning behind the statue and this creation was to maintain memory of the young girls and women from Asian countries, which were sexually enslaved, and additionally, to bring awareness to the sex trafficking of women. The statue itself is constructed, so it represents three girls of young age belonging to three different nationalities, Chinese, Philippine, and Korean. The three girls stand for an approximate number of 200,000 Asian comfort women who were, uh, who were used aside from the Imperial Japanese Army. Bronze is used as a material and the girls stand in a circle-like shape while holding hands. Near the pedestal is a fourth bronze figure looking at the three girls, which represents a grandmother. And it was said that the grandmother carries resemblance to Kim Hak Soon, which was a Korean human rights activist, as well as one of the victims of the horrifying events. Kim Hak Soon was as well the first Korean woman to speak up about her experiences as a comfort woman and the inhuman acts of the Japanese Imperial Army. Why described he had this idea on the appearance and posture of the girls, as he wanted them to look strong and to have this aura of solidarity around them, which, uh, which would automatically create reactions in the viewers of the statue. And politically speaking, the sensitivity of the controversial issue was taken into consideration and the, and the statue was designed not to display any violence or brutality. This leads us to another relevant aspect to the statue, and that being the political influence on it. In 2015, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors anonymously passed a resolution to build a memorial dedicated to comfort women under the push led by retired judges Lillian Singh and Julie Tang. According to District 1 Supervisor Eric Marr, the memorial was expected to serve as a starting point for the education and healing process with an aim to, I quote, keep the issue alive when some in Japan are trying to silence the issue. The memorial was privately funded by the Comfort Women Justice Coalition and was established in cooperation with the community organizations and city agencies. It is equally relevant to say that this is one of the nine existing sculptures in the U.S., but as well as the first sculpture placed in a major U.S. city as San Francisco is. And now that we brought this sculpture to you as close as we could, we come to a significant question, being what is the role of these statues? A memorial is any physical object created, erected or installed to commemorate those involved in or affected by a certain event, and this event unfortunately dominantly being a war or conflict. Each memorial is therefore unique. It represents that community's chosen method of remembrance, whether it be a cenotaph, plague, or even a bus shelter or hospital. We could say that memorials are important because they act as historical touchstones. 
They link the past to the present and enable people to remember and respect the sacrifice of the victims of those specific events. Moreover, memorials can be an important source of information for young people in understanding the sacrifices made by past generations. But additionally, we could also ask ourselves, what do these statues represent for the, for the people themselves? And this question we will try to answer by looking at examples of statues of peace from all over the world. The first bronze statue of peace uh, created by artists Kim Seok-hyung and Kim Eun-sung was installed in front of the Japanese embassy in Seoul in 2011. The small bronze figure represents a short-haired girl sitting barefoot in a chair, staring straight ahead while wearing a hanbok, a traditional Korean dress, and next to her is only an empty chair. Women like 89-year-old An Yong-sun, who, uh, who was once interviewed, see their stories in these statues. For her, the statue symbolizes the youth she lost at age of 13 when the Japanese Imperial Army took her from her village. She and other girls came to be known as comfort women. They served at temporary brothels near the front lines and were first to have sexual interactions with as many as 70 men per day. Anne never got married or had children after what happened to her during the war, and she didn't even start sharing her story until the 1990s. According to her, compensation from Japan means nothing. I quote, At this point, we don't really care about the money, we don't really care about politics. We just want a proper apology from them directly to us. We want them to think about us, the actual women that were involved," Anne said. The latest memorial is showing up on the seats of South Korean city buses. The figure again shows the girl and this seated statue drives around in the bus that stops right in front of the Japanese embassy in Seoul. For the activists installing these statues, the idea is to keep the issue alive now that the victims are growing older and dying. Moreover, they believe that the statues will evoke curiosity in the younger generations, making them ask the older generations for more insights on, insight on these events. Okay, thanks, Hannah. So similarly, on September 28, 2020, the Statue of Peace in Berlin was officially presented to the public. So the statue was intended to draw attention to the, to the survivors' demands for recognition, for formal apology and reparations, which have not yet been met to this day. It also represents the continued sexualized violence perpetrated against women, both in armed conflicts and during peacetime. Moreover, there were already two statues of peace in Germany, one in, v in Wieset near uh, Riedenburg, and a second one in Frankfurt. However, this was the first time a statue of peace was placed in a public square in Berlin. It was brought to Berlin from South Korea as a gift from the Korean Council for Justice and Remembrance of the Issue of Military Sexual Slavery by Japan. And in this current design, the statue focused exclusively on the behavior of the Japanese army during World War II. I quote, the peace statue is meant to be a memorial and a reminder, as well as an incentive to pursue, punish, and finally eradicate crimes against girls and women, said Natalie Young-Hua Han, chairwoman of the Korean Verband, of Korea Verband, in a statement at the end of September. 
However, as we saw, this is a politically charged matter, which led to a significant clash of interest and potential debates on the removal of statues. So in 2017, Yoshimura protested and threatened to end the sisterhood between the two cities of Osaka and San Francisco. According to the Japanese national newspaper, Azai Shimbun, uh, Yoshimura contended contended that the relationship between Osaka and San Francisco of trust was, I quote, completely destroyed by the placement of the statue. He argued that the memorial was unnecessary because Japan has already made amends regarding the issue of comfort women. And finally, Yoshimura finally withdrew sister city status from San Francisco in October 2018. The installation itself worried some of San Francisco Japanese Americans who felt it stigmatized the community and offered only a one-sided account of the Comfort Women story. Retired judge and current chairman of the Comfort Women Justice Coalition, Julie Tang, previously mentioned, refuted this claim by stating the memorial statue tackles the issue of women's freedom from sexual violence, such, uh, such as through rape and assault during wartime. Similar disagreements um, occurred in Korea this year over statues placed in a botanic garden in the mountain town of Pyeongchang. Japanese officials expressed their anger because the statues comprise a seated woman in front of a kneeling man and because the media reports suggests, suggested that the man appeared to resemble Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The man I quote, the man represents anyone in a position of responsibility who could sincerely apologize to the victims of sexual slavery now or in the future. It could even be the girl's father. That's why the statues were named Eternal Atonements. End of quote, said the owner of the garden, Kim Chang Riol, in an interview. And finally, the Statue of Peace erected in Berlin will be allowed to remain for the time being, despite all the controversies around it, announced the responsible local district office recently. So Ms. Christine Neville gave, her, uh, gave us her opinion during our interview with her on this matter, but we'd also like to, to get a little bit of um, your insight, um, the listeners, to think about it further and maybe try to understand and try to answer certain questions. So what do you think about cities and governments building commemorative statues for comfort women? Do you believe they appear as a reminder for people not to repeat such atrocities um, that are part of history? And what do you think is the importance of statues in the process of memorialization? So thank you for listening. Um, we will see you soon in our fifth episode to discuss the question of human rights violations in times of wars and specifically on the phenomenon of sex trafficking in wars today. Thank you. Yes. I can speak. Hello guys, so now we are back with a new episode. So uh, this topic today is going to be uh, hard uh, because we're going to talk about like uh, the historical uh, evolution of um, rape as a weapon of war. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be hard, but I think it's really important to talk about it. As we said before, it's part of the recognition and the memory movement. Uh, so we hope that you will learn a lot uh, from this and that we actually like uh, bring some light uh, on uh, historical events and uh, current events that are happening right now. 
So during the interview, uh, Christine Levy said the phrase that we really want to talk about and develop in this podcast. So she said that the importance of studying the specific narrative of comfort women is that it's allowed to start studying and giving interest to the memories of war and particularly on how memories of war are gendered. So that is why this topic is so interesting interesting to be uh, studied uh, as a history object. And so that really helps us to like understand how our gender and um, see how the past and the present are related. So now we're going to discuss that. Yeah, I really, really liked this quote as well. And I found it really striking as well. And unfortunately, such events of domination or exploitation exist in other historical contexts. So it's not for only for the comfort woman, but it has happened so many times before, and I'm afraid it will happen again. Um, some scholars often refer to the idea that rape is of conflict, but a pre-planned and deliberate uh, military strategy. Um, and so as uh, Mrs. Zainiba Awa-Bangura, uh, who is actually a UN special representative on sexual violence, and so uh, he, she said that sexual violence in conflict need to be treated as the war crime that it is. It can no longer be treated as an unfortunate collateral damage of war. Therefore, we will look at several cases to see how they echo uh, with each other and Uh, which uh, we will highlight the specificity of comfort women and see what consequences this event has in the present. Um, we're going to work in a historical order so that it's easier to follow, sorry. And uh, let's never, ever forget, as we always say it, that the past is omnipresent, constantly being read and reinterpreted in the light of current issues and conflicts. Yes, so uh, the use of rape as a weapon of war is really not a new phenomenon, uh, unfortunately, and even seems as an historical unescapable pattern. So we can even go back to ancient Greece and uh, ancient Rome, where rape of women in warfare were already a way to terrorize, destroy, and punish communities, or even further to change the ethnic, ethnic makeup of the next generation. So it was said that rape was socially acceptable behavior well within the rules of warfare. So now we are more than 10 centuries uh, later, and the problem still exists and has remained mostly unpunished. So for centuries, sexual violence in conflict was tacitly accepted as unavoidable. But the last century is experiencing some changes concerning the impunity of such behavior. So we will see two particular landmark cases of conflicts where sexual violence was a weapon of war. So we will look uh, at the example of the Bosnian War, which uh, took place in 1992 to 1995, uh, which is a really international armed conflict that took place in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and that really participated in the breakup of the Yugoslavia, as you all know. And then we'll look at the Rwanda genocide that occurred in 1994. And so we also uh, have a really important um, discussion on what is happening right now, uh, for example, in Republic Democratic of Congo. Uh, so now let's look at these two examples and learn from them. Yes, yeah, so exactly. I'm going to start by talking about the Bosnian War. Uh, it concerned up to 60,000 women victims of, se of sexual violence in the former Yugoslavia. So this is a huge number. Um, two important reasons to study this case um, in, um, as a field, in, sorry, in the field of gendered memory of war 
are that firstly, this war has a major legal significance and influence. It was the first time that the UN Security Council was involved concerning rape in armed conflicts. So we see that it has a huge impact and it's a, it's a huge deal. Um, indeed, in December of 1992, the Council declared that the massive, organized and systematic detention of rape of women, in particular Muslim women, in Bosnia and uh, Herzegovina, sorry, was an international crime that must be addressed. So it's not just a mistake, it's a real crime. And that's, that was the first time it was recognized as such by the UN. And so also uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia uh, in 1993 considered rape as a crime against humanity alongside other crimes such as torture and extermination when committed in armed conflict and directed against a civilian population. So it really echoes the case of the comfort women. This was a crime, a crime, a crime of war, uh, despite what the Japanese government says. And so the court also expanded the definition of slavery as a crime against humanity to include sexual slavery. Previously, first labor was the only type of slavery to be viewed as a crime against humanity. And the trial of Bosnian Serb army members, such as, for example, Dragoljub Kurnak, was the first time in any national or international jurisprudence that a person was convicted of using rape as a weapon of war. So uh, secondly, why this case is so important when we talk about gender uh, war studies uh, is that historians describe the sexual violence in the Bosnian war as a tool for ethnic cleansing and uh, achieving a pure nation. That's why they would use rape camps with the specific intent of impregnating their victims. It's really, really important to acknowledge that indeed. It is a strong connection between the past and the present we talk here, in this case, about inter intergenerational trauma that are carried on after the end of the conflict due to the children. Um, it is also important to take it into consideration because the children born uh, from these historical events face, face stigmatization, abandonment and rejection by the community, barriers to legal citizenship and land rights and are prevented from accessing formal health, education and employment system. Yeah, so that's like we can see that the Bosnian War was a really landmark um, conflict because it really influenced how the legal system reacts to uh, rape as a weapon of war. So it is the same for the Rwanda genocide, so between the Tutsi and the Hutu, uh, which was extremely violent. So um, the number, like as usual, are really hard uh, to uh, be precise because it's a topic that is really hard uh, to know, like who uh, was raped and like how the um, the impact was uh, during the war, but we say that between uh, there is between 100,000 and 250,000 women that were raped during the three months of the genocide in 1999. So uh, why this is important uh, to study this case is that in 1998, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, established by the United Nations, made landmark decision defining genocidal rape. So that's the first time that we acknowledge the fact that genocidal rape exists. So in 1998, uh, this international criminal uh, tribunal became the first international court to find an accused person guilty of rape as a crime of genocide. And so behind these horrific events, the mass rape during 1999, according to Amnesty uh, International, uh, contributed significantly to the spread of the 
HIV in Rwanda because the sexual because of the sexual violence. And so there is evidence that proves that the perpetrators intentionally infect the victim with the disease, which in turn makes diseases like HIV and uh, AIDS their own weapon of war. So we can see that there is a really strong link between the past and the present because these people uh, were infected by this virus and this virus was in itself a weapon of war. So yes, uh, these two cases are actually very, very uh, interesting and useful and we can draw several conclusions from them uh, that can help us understand also the issue of comfort women. Um, so we found a quote by Gerda Lern, um, who uh, actually summarizes pre uh, pretty well the conclusion that we can draw from these historical events. And so Gerda Lern says that the practice of raping the woman of a conquered group has remained a feature of warfare and con conquest from the second millennium before Christ to the present. It is a social practice which, like the torture of prisoners, has been resistant to progress, to humanitarian reforms and to sophisticated morals and ethical considerations. But it's important to note that even if rape is still a very uh, current issue that has not be been solved, there are some little evolutions in the justice made for the victims with the development of the prosecutions of rapists in war, um, in war crime tribunals and the growing awareness uh, of the international communities and administrations. And so uh, many victims have claimed for compensation and asked, for example, the court to decide about um, how, how they should do to compensate and repair for their for the damage that was that was made and actually uh, many trials uh, took place and uh, and uh, justice was made for several um, several sexual crimes but even though some justice was made we have to remember that judicial truth is not at all the same as historical truth and it's not equal and we still need to make up for the historical uh, perspective and we can't only rely on ju the ju judicial system for such crimes Yes, definitely. Like recognition uh, is really important, and uh, the judicial uh, and justice is taking a stand on that. But there is still uh, the memory that it be, that need to be made uh, in the public and in the population, and uh, not only in the country where uh, the acts uh, were made, but also everywhere. And so, uh, what we can also take from this example uh, is to see and understand the particularity of comfort women. So, uh, the difference is really uh, the specificity of the scale and how well organized it was, as we saw in precedent um, episode, like the really uh, machine and engineering uh, that was made behind uh, this fact of uh, using rape as a weapon of war. And so the horrific number of women forced to participate in this camp and also the involvement of so many countries. Uh, so we can see that it's really important because like the cases were just before, uh, it's less important because here like we have women that were taken from other countries to participate uh, in this uh, action. And so uh, to finish this podcast, uh, we really wanted uh, to um, make honor to Denise Mukwege, which is uh, the receiver of the Nobel Prize in 2018. And so he received it, uh, I quote, for his effort to end the use of sexual violence as a weapon of war and armed conflict in the Republic Democratic of Congo. Uh, so we can see that there is hope to end this unescapable pattern of warfare and violence 
but we definitely and we need to learn from history. So now we just uh, give you a little uh, moment uh, of uh, Mukwege's speech, which is really inspiring, so I let you enjoy this yeah. moment. Oh, this speech is so good. Today I can see that things are changing a lot. Women now are breaking silence. They are becoming the actors of the change in their own society. This is really giving me a lot of hope. One day, we can shift the shame from women to perpetrators. And when this will happen, I'm sure that this question will be solved. My dream, I imagine really a war without rape as a weapon of war. Okay, so now on these really inspiring words, as I said, uh, we'd like to introduce the next podcast, which is going to be on a completely different topic. And uh, of course, we hope that you really enjoyed this one. It is a really important uh, topic that needs to be acknowledged, that we need to really discuss about in order to make uh, the history different for the next generation. So the next podcast... So the next podcast is also going to be really interesting. So literature is not only a source, but also a laboratory for thinking about the past. So that's what is really interesting. And so in the next podcast, we talk about arts and how uh, they have the power to build heritage and call for public and scholars awareness. So that's why the next episode is going to be on an animated movie called her story that we develop why it's called like that and you will see it's really interesting and so uh, before watching and listening to the next podcast we really invite you uh, to watch this animated movie I repeat it it's called Her Story it's a 10 minute clip uh, that will uh, help you uh, enjoy the last podcast thank you for listening to us and we hope you enjoy it yeah thank you yes I can speak. In this episode, we will discuss how art has been a tool for comfort women and feminist activists, particularly in Korea, to make their voices heard. How this particularly surfaced in opposition to revanist moves, mainly in Japan, and a non-recognition and lack of apology from the Japanese government on the subject of conversations during World War II. Many revisionist narratives have seen the light mostly in Japan following the Japanese government's non-recognition and acceptance of what happened to these women in comfort camps. Many have claimed that all comfort women were voluntary prostitutes, freely choosing to offer their services to military men. It was importantly the case in many blogs, notably in the Texas Daddy blog, that that not only tried to debunk the existence of comfort women, but also claimed they were, I quote, nothing more than a prostitute, that the average comfort girl was uneducated, childish, and selfish, inclined to be egoistical, and likes to talk about herself. This individual goes further in writing, I quote, they lived in near luxury in Burma. They had plenty of money with which to purchase desired articles, to supplement the many gifts given to them by the soldiers. These allegations are considered by most as consp conspiracies and thus don't reflect the common perception of events in Japan. This, however, helps us understand the difficulty these women have, mainly in Japan, to be recognized as victims, compensated for and commemorated.
Media has, on the other hand, also very much helped these women's experiences to be set into stone, not only figuratively speaking, as we previously learned, with the building of numerous commemorative statues like that one in San Francisco. Between the lack of government recognition, exclusion of the topic in school curriculums, no outspoken governmental criticism about conspiracy theories on the issue and no apologies, etc., and the violent backlash, mostly from conservative and ultra-nationalist groups in Japan, there was a real need to ensure the commemoration of these women through other means. Art is a medium that is greatly used for the commemoration of comfort women, particularly by Koreans and more specifically Korean women. Diasporic communities of these affected Asian countries claim back that part of their history whilst connecting to the past of their ancestors through artistic creations. As the Japanese government dissociated itself from the issue, the process of memorialization was carried out by other international bodies and importantly by individuals and groups of activists in Asia and most extensively in South Korea. As put by historian and our interviewee Christine Levy, art in a medium for international communication, it allows a direct communication to an audience, even an audience that is unaware of the subject. Art, is art, art and particularly filmic material have often depicted historical agents, events and periods on screen. This literal stages of events is of course limited in scope and is often built to fit a certain historical narrative. As put by French historian and film critic Antoine de Bach, cinema offers a certain projection of the world, creating a discourse through its choices and arrangements. Although it can be considered like an entirely reliable source of information, it serves to commemorate. This memorialization becomes political because of the numerous competing narratives that surround the issue of comfort women. Yes, it's exactly that, Hannah. And so an important aspect of comfort women in cinematography is the power of testimony. So Christine Levy mentioned in her interview, I quote, that les témoignages sont à prendre avec circonscription, mais c'est quand même une voix, meaning in English that testimonials ought to be handled with cares, with care, um, and then they do remain a voice, hear a voice of history. So historian and research director at the CNRS, Annette Vievorka, extensively worked on the place and validity of testimonies in history in her book, L'Air du Témoin, The Era of the Witness. And so she claims in this piece that testimonies are imperative as they allow the remembrance of, I quote, forgotten worlds and experiences. So these testimonies can also contribute to a healing process of the victims, um, of the very few comfort women that are still alive and willing to speak up about their traumatic experience during World War II. Some chose to help cinematographers recount these stories that are their stories. So the animated short film, Her Story, or Her Story, notably comes to mind. So the title alone of this short film, Her Story, is very evocative. So the term her story stems from a feminist impulse to place women at the center of historical narratives, replacing the male pronoun his in history to her, thus becoming her story. Like the term itself, the animation her story places a female voice at the core of this historical and commemorative project. It also makes sense because her story recounts former comfort woman Seo Woon Young's experience. 
Through her voice, she narrates her own story, reclaiming that part of her life to an extent and thus contributing to the healing process of herself and certainly that of other victims. So this film retraces this film retraces um, this South Korean woman's past um, in a sexual slavery camp in Samarang, Indonesia. This animation was made in 2011 by Yun Ki Kim in commemoration of this woman born in 1924 and deceased in 2004. The power of this animated 10 minute film lies in its narration, Seo Woon Young's story. Her personal account allows us to grasp much more the atrocious nature of the crimes that she um, that were that were perpetrated at the time by the Japanese imperialist army in southeastern Asia. She very clearly describes she was raped repeatedly by army men that would stand in line in front of her huts or dorms where her and other girls were kept. I quote her. I can't even count how many soldiers came in, especially on weekends, lining up still in uniform. She then later adds, there's just too much to tell. So Sion Woon uh, Young's testimony is particularly moving, um, as you can imagine. And we vividly um, recommend you to watch her story for that reason. It also holds a historical value as her story confirms many different accounts and sources that have been cross-referenced on the subject. Um, Christine Lévy herself qualified this document, uh, this um, animated film as a very good quality um, film, so that backs up that information also. Um, uh, Seo Woon Young explains how she came from a wealthy South Korean family. She was 15 at the time, and her father was at that time also imprisoned by the Japanese imperialist army. That very Japanese army deceived her into leaving Korea telling her that if she would go to work in a factory for two years in Japan, her father would be freed. Following um, what she says in that, in that animation, um, what really happened was that her father passed away in prison and she was sent to Indonesia unbeknownst to her and they made her into a sex slave or a comfort woman, as some would put it. She also later in the film mentions the, re the regular visits at the local hospital to check these women weren't carrying any diseases that could be passed on to soldiers. Furthermore, Mrs. Young um, mentions how these military men drugged these girls, obliging them to intake opium, for example. Um, she then later describes how she turned into an opium addict, um, just to give you an idea. Her last words in, the, in this film are the following. I, um, I quote, I kept telling myself that I just have to stay alive. They they may have killed my body, but not my spirits. This is how I survived. So these very poignant and deeply humbling words strongly echo with the experiences of other way, of other victims of war crimes. So although a different subject and quite incomparable experience, Seo Woon Young's positivity, hope, and a certain level of luck in the sense that she survived um, giving the horrific situation she was in, seems to have um, what seems to have been what kept her alive, and so account uh, this account can be comparable um, to that of Primo Levi in his book Si c'est un homme, or If this is a man. So these testimonies, that of Primo Levi but also that of Young, stress the importance of memorial memorialization of such events. 
When looking into human rights violations and war crimes, there's also another question that comes to mind. It's that of the unrepresentable. How can one represent the unrepresentable, the atrocious, the unimaginable? Her, stor her story or her story shows certain rape scenes experienced by Xiao Wunyang and other girls placed in these camps, something that, that would have been much harder if not an animation. The animation also allows a certain level of anonymity, as the only real testimony we have is that of Mrs. Young, and it's only under the voice of her voice, under the form of her voice, sorry. So animation is also greatly related to innocence. Um, when we start watching this film, we don't really expect that we'll be submerged with such violence, although aware of the subject. And this innocence also echoes that of these girls, although addressed as comfort women. Her story um, shows how indeed these women's role were to comfort men, although this euphemism entirely excludes the notion of abuse, rape and sexual slavery. We must remain vigilant when looking at history through cinematic lens. However, it is an important healing and memorialization tool that can't be neglected. It also demonstrates the power of art as a political tool, especially when certain issues are avoided and try to be concealed by governmental bodies. This overall of remember the history in which we were first. This must be remembered for such history must not be repeated again. So we would all like to thank you so much for listening to our podcast, I Can Speak. We really hope it helps you further discover the issues of comfort women. The debate surrounding comfort women raises important points. The question of memorialization, of representation, of recognition, and apology. It also touches on all two contemporary issues like human rights and abuse and war crimes. But it is also really important for us to take a moment to thank historian Christine Levy for a fabulous and highlighting contribution to our podcast. So she really helped us deepen our understanding of the complexities surrounding the subject of comfort women. And I hope it does for you too now. And so that's why we'd like to finish um, on some of her words that we um, were lucky enough to hear during our interview with her. So she mentioned that the emergence of such a memory is very important especially when it's a voice that is unusually heard. Um, it, isn't, it is this case for women, and more specifically for women in times of war. These rapes that were considered as unimportant or secondary are now gaining some importance. It raises necessary questions on the subject of rape and prostitution in times of wars, um, as it is a mean for domination and annihilation. So for that, we thank Christine Levy, Thank you for her kind words and for her very interesting inputs. And please feel free to contact us if you have any information on this topic or even potential questions or any doubts. And please remember, comfort women can and need to continue to speak. Thank you for your attention and see you for the next series of podcasts we will hopefully make. Yes.